Hi, I'm Rachel Hollis, and this is my podcast. I spend so many hours of every single week reading and listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos and trying to find out as much as I can about the world around me. And that's what we do on this show. We talk about everything, life and how to be an entrepreneur. What happened to dinosaurs? What's the best recipe for fried chicken? What's the best plan for intermittent fasting? What's going on with our inner child? How's therapy working out for you? Whatever it is my guests are into, I want to unpack it so that we can all understand. These are conversations. This is information for the curious. This is the Rachel Hollis Podcast. Dr. Avon, I feel like starting with the fact that I finally got my chance to go to one of your clinics and do the brain scan and experience all of that is um, what I'm really excited about right now. But I think to sort of take the listeners on a journey to how I got to that place, we have to start with the first book of yours I read, which was The End of Mental Illness. That book jumped out at me because I have an older brother who was schizophrenic and took his own life. And so studying mental illness and its effects on the brain and different ways to treat it is, has always been uh, a passion of mine since that happened. How did you get into this work? So I actually grew up in a reasonably normal family. There's something called the ACE score. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's adverse childhood experiences. And it's a really interesting test. And it's on a scale of zero to 10 on how many bad things happened to you when you were a child. And so, for example, my wife is an eight. My nieces, who we adopted, are nine. And I was a one. Now, I have my own issues, which maybe we'll talk about some of them, like I'm a middle child and the second son in a Lebanese family, which means you're irrelevant. But I went to medical school thinking I was going to be a pediatrician. And I got married when I was a second year medical student. And three months later, my wife tried to kill herself. And I took her to see a wonderful psychiatrist. And I came to realize if he helped her, it wouldn't just help her, that it would help me. It would help our children, our grandchildren, as they would be shaped by someone who was happier and more stable. So 40 years ago, 42 years ago, I fell in love with psychiatry. And I've loved it every day since. But I fell in love with the only medical specialty that virtually never looks at the organ it treats. I was an infantry medic before I went to medical school and then an x-ray technician. And when I was an x-ray technician, our professors used to say, how do you know unless you look? So right away in my psychiatric training, I started agitating for, we should look. These are brain issues. They're not mental health issues. So I've hated the term mental illness all the way along. Because if you just think about it, call somebody mental, you're shaming them. Call someone a brain, you elevate them. And the whole idea behind the end of mental illness is we need to break this paradigm and come up with something completely different, which is brain health. We need to be passionate about brain health because even though your brother was diagnosed with schizophrenia, it's like, well, what does that mean? 
it means he lost touch with reality. Right. Well, why did he lose touch right. with reality? The organ of reality is your brain. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things we learned, for example, is Lyme disease is very common in people with schizophrenia. If you look at the highest places in the U.S. with schizophrenia, it's the Northeast, the North Midwest, and the West Coast. And if you overlay the highest incidence of Lyme, they're virtually identical. Now, it doesn't mean your brother had Lyme, but it means somebody should have hunted for it. Right. And without looking, by making diagnoses just based on symptom clusters with no biological data, that's insanity. Yeah. And that's what's going on in psychiatry. And I'm not okay with it. Yeah. And I'm a double board certified psychiatrist. I've got like, you know, awards and all of that. But I'm like, no, we're we're going the wrong way. And the end of mental illness, I sort of go after my colleagues and go, we need a new way. Why do you think it is that we, and I don't know if this is sort of global or if this is something that just exists in the U.S., but why do you think that we sort of hold so passionately to the way things have always been done in medicine. Like I have, in one of my books I talked about, I I used to have debilitating anxiety. And one of my fears, because I had watched these years of my brother be put on every different medicine and nothing really worked. And I was at a place in my life where I felt like I was going to have to take something which really made me very nervous. And so I started learning as much as I could about ways to treat my anxiety that weren't about taking a prescription. And I'm not against medicine. It was just for me personally, I wanted to try other things. So I did a ton of therapy and I started running and I, you know, cut out caffeine and sugar and all of these things that drastically helped the way I was feeling. And I've written about that before, and I've gotten so much flack and so much pushback from people who hate the idea of there being alternatives to traditional, like, oh, there's a pill for that, or we can give you this, or you can take this thing. And I, I'm just curious, why do you think, is it that an evolution has to happen and time has to go by where we start to understand there are different ways to pursue our health or... What is your theory on why people don't gravitate to this idea more easily? Well, you know, what I learned a long time ago is everything we do in psychiatry is controversial. If you give people medicine, people hate you. If you don't give people medicine, people hate you. I learned hypnosis early in my career, and I loved it. I still love it. And people, some people think it's of the devil. And I'm like, what you need to do is do what's best for you. I'm not opposed to medicine. It's just never the first and only thing I think about. And with anxiety disorders, benzos are a freaking disaster. They're addictive. They cause memory problems. Once you start them, you can't stop them. And I think most really well-trained psychiatrists don't use them anymore. Unfortunately, 85% of psychiatric drugs or prescribed by non-psychiatric physicians in seven-minute office visits. Those are the people that leave with prescriptions for Xanax, for Ambien, for sleep, for Lexapro, without doing. I mean, I applaud you. That's what I would want for all of my patients. Medicine should never be the first and only thing you, you do. You should first learn to meditate. 
You should learn not to believe every stupid thing you think. You should learn to gain psychological distance from the noise in your head. And you need to treat the brain like it's an organ, because it is, and you need to feed it right. You need to exercise it. You need to you know, get rid of some of the toxins in our environment, like alcohol is not a health food. And marijuana is not great for you long term. It makes your brain smaller. So there's this really interesting book written in 1962 called The Structure of Scientific Revolution. And I love it because it explains my life because, you know, I've been brutalized by my colleagues for what I do. And it used to bother me until I realized this is how science progresses. So first, somebody notices the status quo isn't working. And then the status quo sort of notices it too, and they make these small fixes. And then three, somebody comes up with a new idea. Like, how do you know unless you look? First, do no harm. Let's use the least toxic, most effective treatments. And so, you know, at Amen Clinics, we built a completely new paradigm. And then stage four is the most common, the most reliable of all stages. It's the rejection right? You put out something new, people are just going to hate it because there's money involved in this. There's jealousy involved and the brain doesn't really like to change. And so in stage five, and we're at 4.7, stage five is the acceptance because so many people want your approach. They want my approach. They are afraid of medicine as it's, it's rational right? All psychiatric drugs have black box warnings. Now, I don't want people stopping their medicine. I just want them working with somebody that will give them alternatives. Because that feels like a dangerous thing that I haven't heard a lot of people talk about. If you're going on certain medications, let's say to treat your anxiety, then you're going to need that consistently. Is that what you're saying? Like it's hard to remove that from your system? So a lot of people don't know this about psychiatric drugs is they change your brain to need them in order for you to feel normal, which is why they're generally not my first choice. I wanna teach you skills and nourish your brain, not just give you pills. Now, if I need to give you pills, I'm really good at it. And it's just, it's not the first thing I think about. Now, if you come to me suicidal, or you come to me psychotic, I'm probably going to use pills the first thing. But so many people come because they're sad or they're tired or they're anxious or they're having panic attacks. And in medical school, like year one, they teach you first do no harm. Well, if all psychiatric medications have black box warnings, it means they harm people. And I went to this lecture by the person who founded Paul Mitchell, and he said, you never want to be in the order business. You want to be in the reorder business. And that's what psychiatry came to believe. They don't want to treat your illness like you have an infection. You know, you take antibiotics for a short period of time and then you don't. It's they wanted to be in the reorder business. And that's why we came up with the idea, oh, you have a chemical imbalance, like somehow you were born with a Prozac deficiency. And it's like, really? People get that nonsense in their first psychiatric visit, which just meant you and the psychiatrist are going to be partners for a very long time. And, and I'm like, well, maybe, 
you know, I want to help you as long as you need me. But my goal is to get you better because that's rational. And it's also a better business decision because then you'll refer a whole bunch of patients. Like at Amen Clinics, our number one referral source since we started 32 years ago are our own patients. And, you know, I I love that. We, We just have to be more thoughtful. And in the end of mental illness, I talk about evil ruler strategies. I imagined if I was an evil ruler and I wanted to create mental illness, uh, what would I do? Well, I'd make psychiatric drugs available like candy. Go to your nurse practitioner and end up on Xanax. And it's like, maybe that's not a good idea. Man, there's so many layers to this. And the other piece that happens is I think like there's something tangible about I'm having, I'm struggling with something and then here's something tangible I can do as opposed to, you know, here are 15 things that you can do. And if you do them consistently, that's really going to improve the quality of your life, but it's not as fast. It's not like something that you can, you know, okay, I did this, I took this thing today and it calmed me down or brought me to this place. And I know that having this conversation is I know for a fact, this is going to rub people the wrong way. I just know it because having this conversation many times has rubbed people the wrong way. But I come from a family, both my immediate family and and my wider family where prescription medication is so abused, so abused. Literally, my I, I have heard since I was a little girl, there's a pill for that. It's like a family joke. Whatever you're, you know, oh, like I hit my elbow. It's like, oh, there's a pill for that because it just became a thing, which as a little girl, I didn't understand how twisted that was. Now as an adult who has worked so hard to have a better understanding of health and what it looks like to have great health holistically, not just, you know, how do you look, but how do you feel? How do you think? How do you focus? You know, what's your joy? All of that. I can look back now on my childhood and understand how much we were all sort of set up for failure in in that way of not really learning alternatives to help how we were feeling, but just sort of looking for a quick fix, whether it was a pill or a drink or something. And I just feel like so many people are struggling with this. So I just want to say that if you're hearing this and it's sort of, there's something that it's kind of like pushing in you, there's a button that is pushing. I think it's more powerful to ask yourself why this is bothering you than to immediately just dismiss the things we're saying. And I just want to like go on record for listeners with that. You know, it's funny. Most of the people who come to Amen Clinics, and it could be just the people who come to Amen Clinics, they don't want to start with medication. And and it could be because they've seen me on TV or read one of my books, and that's why they're there. But there's a lot of pushback against there's a pill for that, that people want skills, not just pills. And In my experience, if you do the right things, you can feel better quickly. So for example, teaching someone diaphragmatic breathing almost always breaks a panic attack. And there's no side effects to that. No one gets addicted to it. I mean, they might really like doing it over and over again, but it's never going to hurt them. You know, I like to think what helps you feel better fast that will last right? I'm always trying to think with my patients, how can you feel better now and later versus now, but not later? So if you think of marijuana, it's now, but not later. Or um, the new fad is mushrooms and psilocybin. It's now, but not later. 
or alcohol now, but not later, or having an affair now, but not later, or staying up late at night, you feel better now, but not later. And I, I always want to, I want to think in all of the moments, but 50% of people who make it to 85 will have dementia, five zero. I'm not okay with it. I want you to be loving on your brain. Oh, by the way, it's also how you decrease depression by doing the right things for your brain, starting as early as possible, even preconception. You know, if we really want to decrease the genetic risk for depression or bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, Alzheimer's disease, we want to be intervening with brain health strategies as early as possible. And what are some of those? I mean, obviously, it's in the book. You talk about the bright minds, like those sorts of things. But can you walk us through some of your favorites that people who are listening just like, hey, here's some hard and fast rules that are going to change the way that you're thinking about how to take care of your brain? So, you know, I've been thinking about this for decades and how to make it as easy as possible. And brain health is basically three things. Brain envy, you got to care about it. Freud was wrong. Penis envy is not the cause of anybody's problem. Not seen it once in 40 years. Brain envy, you got to care about the three pounds of fat between your ears. And nobody cares about their brain. Why? Because you can't see it, right? You can see the wrinkles in your skin or the fat around your belly, and you can do something when you're unhappy with it. And that's what the imaging work has done for me. When I show you your brain, you're going to fall in love with it, and you'll never again want to do anything to hurt it. So that's number one, brain envy, got to care. Two is avoid things that hurt your brain. Know the list. And most second graders know the list. I went to my daughter's second grade class, put 20 things on the board, and I'm like, good for your brain or bad for it. And they got 19 out of 20 right, like head trauma, football, smoking, alcohol. I'll put that all in the bad category. The only thing they missed was orange juice. They put it in the good category. And orange juice has way too much sugar. I mean, when is it really rational to eat the sugar in four or five oranges. It's just not rational. So avoid things that hurt it and then do things that help it. So loving your brain, exercise, new learning, simple supplements, especially omega-3 fatty acids because a quarter of the nerve cell membranes in your brain are made up with omega-3 fatty acids and 95% of the population is deficient in it along with get your vitamin D level checked and optimized. And simple things, you're depressed, take a sauna. There's actually a study in the Journal of the American Medical Association, saunas have antidepressant effects. And then I always think of people in four big circles. So biologically, love your brain, feed it, exercise. Psychological circle, don't believe every stupid thing you think. When I'm working on a new book for next year called You Happier the neuroscience of feeling good. And there's this great technique in the book called give your mind a name so you can psychologically distance so you don't have to listen to it. So I have a little raccoon because I named my mind after my pet raccoon when I was 16. Her name was Hermie. And she was a troublemaker, just like my mind, you know, my mind will like hold up signs. You're an idiot. You're a failure. Nobody loves you. And I'm like, 
metaphorically put her in the cage, choose to listen to her or not. Socially, there's a social circle. You want to be happy? Notice what you like about other people more than what you don't. We are always shaping the other people in our world. And are you doing it in a negative way or a positive way? And my favorite circle is always the spiritual circle. So why the heck do you care? Why are you on the planet? What is your deepest sense of meaning and purpose? Why do you want a healthy brain? I often ask myself, does it fit? Does my behavior fit the goals I have for my life? And I want to talk really quickly about the idea of naming your mind. So I do this practice at conference, I I men's conference, and I practice with them where uh, I don't say it in the exact same way, but essentially like name the negative self-talk, like give it a name, imagine what it looked like. Like um, I always say that if my negative self-talk name, I call Ham. She's like the kind of woman who wants to speak to the manager at the restaurant. Like she's annoying and she's rude and she's, and so when those thoughts start to come up, I am mindful of like, oh, yep, that's Pam. Like she, it's not my real, it's based on nothing. Um, I always think too, it's really interesting, especially for women when I ask them to do this practice. And then I ask them, is the voice male or female? And when you like give it a persona, is it male or female to you? And sort of what that represents of typically tied to our childhood and kind of what those voices were, because I feel like that's how I'm able to gain separation from the thoughts that are running through my mind. So I dig that idea and I feel like it's so helpful. The other thing I wanted to make sure and talk about with you too, was how our minds shift and change, like how you feel like the last year maybe has affected the way people are thinking and processing. I actually, it was so random. I was with Jay Shetty last week and I sat down with him. I'm like, Jay, oh my gosh, I did the coolest thing today. You're not going to believe this. And he was like, I did the coolest thing. And I'm like, oh, well, I, I'm like, do you know who Dr. Amon is? He's like, yeah, of course. He's been on the podcast twice. And I was like, I did the brain scan. He's like, we did the brain scan. And so <laughs> literally we left at like 2.30 and they got there at three. So it was so random. So on that podcast episode, we talked about you for a while. So you're getting all the, all, all the traction, but we were both talking about feeling like our ability to focus has, we've, we both feel like we've lost some focus and we were trying to unpack, like, is that the phone and how much we're all on the phone is that. COVID and that sort of shift or change things because the reason that I wanted to have a scan with you was one, just my family history of mental illness, what we're not calling it that anymore. But two, all I care about, like it's a huge part of health and all is how well I can focus, how clear my mind is. I just, I, there's so many responsibilities in my life. And I'll have to go from a podcast interview to writing a book, to managing my team, to raising four kids. Like there's just a lot. And I want clear, like I want a clear head. I want the ability to get into flow state quickly, all of these things. So how do you think things have shifted or why do you think that maybe both of us feel like our focus has kind of like fallen off? So many ways to answer that. COVID caused chronic stress for all of us. Now, some of it was good stress because you really had to reevaluate the important places you went, the important people you're with. And I know for us at home, we got closer because the teenagers couldn't just go all the time. 
And, you know, I really cherished that. But no, no doubt the chronic exposure to stress hormones sort of made our hippocampus smaller. Hippocampus is two major structures deep in your brain that are involved with mood, memory, but also focus. The hippocampus is Greek for seahorse because they're in the shape of a seahorse. And you make about 700 new baby stem cells, hippocampal cells or baby seahorses every day. Chronic exposure to cortisol shrinks them. And then we have more brain fog. And then a lot of people picked up bad habits during the pandemic. The amount of weight gain was just insane, especially among young adults. It was really horrifying that, you know, 20 to 30 group gained the most weight of everyone. So with weight gain comes inflammation, stress, smaller hippocampus. Yes. And the phones, you know, our phone use, our digital use went up and is continuing to go up, shrinking our attention span. And then sleep got disturbed. And so if you need to be sharp, and you do, you know, like so many women, they're managing their children, their houses, their careers, but they use alcohol as a way to relax at night, which disrupts their sleep. You want to be focused today, you have to go to bed in a good way yesterday. Right. When I make a decision to go to bed at the right time and I always put myself to sleep the same way, I say a prayer and then I go, what went well today? And I review my day starting in the morning with the coolest things that happen, even the little I call them micro moments of happiness. And then my sleep is better. I have more REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep or dream sleep. And I'm directing sleep in a good way much more likely to be clear-headed tomorrow. And then I generally do intermittent fasting. And the reason is, if you can go 12 to 14 hours from dinner to breakfast without eating one, you're not eating at night, which helps you sleep better. And two, there's this cool word called autophagy, which means your brain starts to clean up the trash that build up the day before. So sleep is absolutely essential to a flow state, to having good focus over time. And then build in the habits. You you know, to have a healthy body, you know that takes work, right? In our society where bad food is just everywhere, it takes lots of good decisions. Well, for you to be mentally healthy, you need that same level of discipline. So I start every day with today's going to be a great day just to get my mindset right. As I go through my day, I'm like, is this good for my brain or bad for it? And, you know, the more good for my brain decisions, the longer I can work, the more mental clarity I have. And and then you want to get your important numbers checked on a regular basis. How's your testosterone? How's your iron level? How's your blood sugar? All of those are critical to maintaining that flow state. And how often should we be getting those checks? Every year. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. When you're 30, every year you should go get your labs checked, make sure your thyroid's optimal, your vitamin D level. Like 80% of my patients are low in vitamin D. 95% have a low omega-3 index. And, And I'm not looking for normal. I'm looking for optimal. For example, vitamin D normals between 30 and 100. 
Well, people over 40 have half the risk of cancer of those who are under 20. So I want my vitamin D level in the middle of a pandemic at around 80 or 90, because people who had healthy vitamin D levels had a lower risk of dying from COVID. And is that something that you can get from being outside and exposure to the sun? Or is that something that you probably do need to augment with a supplement? Most people need to augment with a supplement because as much as we love the sun, um, it doesn't always love us back. And And unfortunately, one of the reasons our vitamin D levels have plummeted, dermatologists, one, they made us afraid of the sun. And so now there's all these toxic sunscreens that, you know, people are putting on their bodies, on their children's bodies. I'm like, come on, read the label. Because in Bright Minds, that's our mnemonic to get and keep the brain healthy. The T is toxins. And one of the biggest toxins are the products you put on your body. So I have everybody download the app, Think Dirty. Not what you think it is, but it allows you to scan all of the barcodes on your personal products. And it'll tell you on a scale of one to 10, how quickly they're killing you. And when I first downloaded it, I threw out half my bathroom. So just thinking how practical this can be, I shaved with Barbasol for about 50 years since I was 14. And on a scale of one to 10, one is good, 10 is bad. It's a nine. I'm like, I've just been pouring toxins into my body. I don't like that. Now I use something called Kiss My Face. I have no financial interest in them. It's a two. And it's actually not more expensive because it lasts like 40 times longer. And that's a sign of love. People go, oh, it's hard. And I'm like, no, being sick is hard. Doing the right things to have a healthy brain, that's not hard. It just means you have to change some bad habits. Oh my gosh. I I mean, first of all, I'm definitely going to go get that app because I feel like I read that in the book and then didn't do it at the time. And now this is a sign that I need to go back and do it again. I'd love to talk about going to the clinic and getting a scan and sort of what that process was like and, and why I know you and I are going to have an appointment later and we're going to go through all the findings and I cannot wait, but I'm just to sort of talk people through what it is that happens at the clinic and why, for instance, why I did the things on the computer and why I did the actual, like go into the machine thing and get scanned. So can you tell me about why you built the clinics in the first place? So we do things really differently than most psychiatrists. I mean, most psychiatrists will take a history and you'll tell them the story of your life. And we certainly did that too. People fill out about 25 pages. I think our histories are better than anyone's. But then we're going to look at your brain. Because how the heck do I know what's going on in your brain based on just what you tell me? You know, making diagnoses based on symptom clusters with no biological data, that's insanity. We do a study called SPECT. SPECT looks at blood flow and activity, looks at how your brain works. It's a nuclear medicine study. So the hardest part of the procedure is getting a little tiny needle in the vein vein in your arm. And we inject some medicine while you're doing a concentration test. Because I want to see what happens to your brain when you try to use it. And then we end up with these beautiful 3D pictures that are so helpful. I'll tell you so which areas of your brain that are healthy. There are many. Which areas of the brain work too hard and which areas aren't working hard enough? And as we balance them. So you've heard it said, a picture is worth a thousand words, but a map is worth a thousand pictures. 
a map tells you where you are and gives you direction on how to get to where you want to go. So we mapped your brain and then that plus what you tell us, plus we do cognitive testing because, you know, sometimes you go, my memory is terrible and it's actually pretty good. So it may be something else. So we test your brain in a very sophisticated way. And then we come up with a plan. And that plan always is in four circles. You know, we're going to look at the biology, the psychology or how you think, the social circle, what's going on in your life, think pandemic, the spiritual circle, why do you care? And we intervene in all four of those circles. So it might be supplements, exercise, change in diet, learning how to not believe every stupid thing you think, relationship issues, and then getting in touch. I have an exercise I love called the one-page miracle. On one piece of paper, write down what you want. Relationships, work, money, physical, emotional, spiritual health. What do you want? And then ask yourself, is my behavior getting me what I want? Because that's mental health. It's knowing what you want and being able to consistently act in ways to help you. I am so excited. I don't think we're meeting until the end of the month. I'm so excited to know. When Jay and I were talking about this, we were laughing because we did this whole buildup and then we're like, well, we can't, because we're doing a podcast. We're like, we can't tell you guys anything. We don't know what has been found out about us yet. What do you think is some of the find with patients that they had no idea was an issue and is really life-changing once they have that information? Well, a couple of big lessons I learned that just surprised me is mild traumatic brain injury is a major cause of psychiatric problems and nobody knows it. So we ask you in your history, have you ever had a brain injury? A lot of people go, no, but we see evidence of it on the scan. And so when I push them, they'll like go, oh yeah, I was seven years old and fell out of a second story window. Do you think that counts? Stephen Hilton, a well-known musician came to see me and this is all public. We posted it on Facebook. Depressed his whole life and struggled with addiction. And his brain clearly was hurt. And he didn't remember it, but the story in his family is he fell down a flight of stairs when he was two. And could that one injury have changed the rest of his life? Absolutely. Now, we're able to fix it, and he's doing dramatically better. So that's one. Two, toxins really do matter. So, for example, Dave Asprey, the founder of Bulletproof, got a scan about 15 years ago because he thought he had ADD and he just couldn't focus. And he's at the Wharton School business and his brain looked toxic, but he wasn't drinking and he wasn't a drug addict. He was living in a mold-filled home. Now, how would you know? Most psychiatrists would just diagnose him as ADD, put him on Ritalin or Adderall. And when it didn't work, they'd sort of say he had a personality problem. And I'm like, why does his brain look toxic? He had actually ended up making a movie called Moldy. Yeah, I remember that. And it's because he was fixing his own brain. And anyway, after he fixed his own brain, I have his brain like 14 years apart. He went on to build this great company that focuses on brain health. So toxins and the other is infections, like we talked about earlier. I had no idea. Lyme was a major cause of psychiatric problems. And now I have COVID scans. And COVID is not a good thing for your brain. It activates the limbic or emotional centers in your brain, putting you at higher risk for anxiety and depression. 
And so we need to know about it. So if you got if you got COVID, there are lasting effects to your brain for some people going forward. And they're finding it's having a negative impact on brain function. So and then sleep. I used to think I was special because I only needed four hours of sleep at night. And then I'm looking at all those studies and I realize I'm not special. I'm stupid. I need to get seven or eight hours of sleep and make it a priority because when you're not sleeping seven or eight hours, trash builds up, making it harder to think. And both you and I, I mean, we have big missions and we want to make a difference. Our best tool is our brain. Man, there's so many things to think about. And I think like, this is such a silly thing to take out of this. And I remember reading this in the book and being like, oh, is I am so healthy in so many ways. And I definitely have vodka all the time. (laughs) Big fan, big fan of vodka. And I remember when we were going, I was going with my boyfriend because we both got scans done. And um, he was like, I just feel like they're going to look at our brains and tell us that we have to stop having alcohol. So is it, is it, you're just like, you don't have any, it's an occasional thing. Like what, I I feel like you're going to look at my brain and be like, Rachel, stop drinking vodka. But I have already (laughs) given up so many things, but tell me why I should. Well, the best blog I wrote last year is titled, I told you so. So I've been scanning for 30 years. This is not a new idea for me. And, and I start the blog with when I started dated my wife, Tana, and I've been together for 15 years. She told me, I'll never tell you I told you so. And she lied. It's like her favorite thing to say. (laughs) And alcohol, people who drink every day have smaller brains. And when it comes to the brain, size matters. But what triggered that blog was the American Cancer Society came out last year and said, we shouldn't drink. That any alcohol is associated with an increased risk of seven different kinds of cancer. And cancer is not good for your brain. Chemotherapy, the chronic stress, it's not good for your brain. And you're like, but I love it. And the question I have for you is, does it love you back? And we're in a relationship with whatever behaviors we're doing. We're in a relationship with food, with alcohol, with marijuana. And I don't know if you've ever been in a bad relationship. I've been in bad relationships and I'm not doing it anymore. I'm only going to be in a relationship with people or substances that I love that love me back. And I'm pretty clear alcohol doesn't love you back. It damages your skin, it damages your liver, it damages your heart, it damages your immune system. And for certain, it damages your brain. <laughs> so depressing. So it's, Rachel, the question is how much do you love yourself? Right. Because, see, I think, because when you have the mindset where I've given up so much, Drew Carey, he, he made a comment. He lost a lot of weight. He used to be really overweight. And he lost a lot of weight. And when I heard him say, eating crappy food isn't a reward. It's a punishment. I knew he was going to stay healthy because it's a mindset thing. Like when I first got healthy, I missed Rocky Road ice cream. Well, now I see it as the enemy. And so that means I'm going to be able to avoid it because rather than long for it, I actually see it as something that will hurt me. And ultimately, 
you just have to ask yourself, how much do you love yourself? <laughs> Are you familiar with Enneagram numbers? Um, just a little bit. Okay. In the classification of that uh, personality test, I'm a three, which is an achiever. And uh, yeah, I would love to be able to tell you, oh, I love myself so much that that's an easy you know, light switch for me to flip. But the reality is more that would there be a marked improvement in my focus, cognition, all of those things, if I remove that from my life, because uh, that actually is way more interesting and exciting to me than just like, oh, you love yourself. So you're going to, I know I should. You find your motivation. Yeah. You're right. And if you go, well, I'm going to be sharper. Yes. And I'm going to sleep better. And I'm going to be a better mom. I mean, whatever works for you, right? It's know your motivation. And then I, I have an exercise I like called anchor images. It's know your motivation and post it in a picture. So like my motivation is I have a handicapped granddaughter who has a seizure disorder. And she's going to need me for the rest of her life. Well, I'm like way older than she is. So my motivation to stay healthy is she needs me and I love her. And so I can't just sort of go off into the sunset and let my mind deteriorate. My mind's got to stay sharp. Plus another part of my motivation is I have four children and I love them, but I never want to have to live with them. <laughs> I want to be independent and I don't want to be a burden for them. And I don't want them taking my driver's license from me. I mean, I'm like, like really practical stuff. I want to be independent for as long as possible, which means I have to take care of my brain. I love that. I feel like I could talk to you about this for hours, which is probably why you've been on Jay's podcast so many times. I have so appreciated the time. I've, I've, this is the second time I've gotten to talk to you, and I'm really grateful for the insight and the wisdom that you're sharing with me and with listeners. If people are listening to this and they want to find out more information, which of your books do you feel like they should start with? Because you have lots to choose from. And where can they find out more info about you, follow you online? Give us like the full picture of, of how to understand better if this is the first time meeting you. Well, thank you so much. I think starting with the end of mental illness or change your brain, change your life would be a great place for my books. Um, amenclinics.com, amen like the last word in a prayer. Clinics.com, they can learn about the clinics. I also founded a supplement company, brainmd.com, and they can follow me on Facebook at Dr. Daniel Amen or uh, Instagram at, at doc, D-O-C underscore Amen. We're always posting free stuff. We just did a 30-day happiness challenge, 32,000 people sign up, and after 30 days, on average, people were 20% happier. So I'm pretty excited about that. That's incredible. So, you know, you can go and treat a sort of mental health issue or I'm like, it's the same thing to be happy. I was really excited and love what we do and love our community so much. And Now I get to love you and I'm very excited about that. Yeah, I'm so excited too. And I can't wait to hang out at the end of the month. We're going to find out what my brain scan said. You're going to tell me all the things. We'll have to do a follow-up with listeners so they know what we learned. But I'm grateful for the time. And I love the work that you're doing and just keep telling me how I can be supportive of it. Thank you so much, Rachel. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is hosted by me, Rachel Hollis. 
Our show is edited by Andrew Weller with additional production support by Sterling Coates. Our executive producer is Cameron Berkman. The Rachel Hollis Podcast is a 3% chance production.